If you would, turn to Acts 2 to begin with. Acts chapter 2. So we started looking last week at the purposes of church. Why do we meet here? Why do we have a church here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly? And last week we looked at three of the purposes, exalting God in worship, evangelizing the world through all of us witnessing and through mission works that we do. And then we, the last part thing we looked at was that we equip the church through teaching and mentoring. And so tonight I just want to look, so we still have three pillars left, and I want to look at one tonight, and that is the pillar of encouraging one another in fellowship. And we'll look at the other two the next time we get into this. If you would in Acts 2, we'll look in verse 42, and we read there that the early church, it says, and we did a series on this way back when, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There's four things here, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And one of the four things, it says that they continued steadfastly in, something that they devoted themselves to. That's what that word continued steadfastly is saying was fellowship, which is what we want to talk about tonight. So they were devoted to those four things. They were devoted to fellowship, which means when you're devoted to something, you don't avoid it. You don't just do it once a year, occasionally, right? And so it's something that they were constantly involved with. Fellowship with one another, it's a way of life. So when I came under this faith teaching years back, that's the way it was taught. And I believe we're looking at it here. It's biblical that the church should now become your way of life. It's not just something you do on the side or something you do once a week and then you have the rest of your life that's fun and we show up here. No, I mean the church and church people, they should literally become a way of life. You have a new family and that's biblical. We, we have new brothers and sisters that are closer in a lot of ways than our real brothers and sisters and that's really true. So the word for fellowship is koinonia and that means a close association. You have a close association that involves mutual interest in sharing with everybody that's here. It's the idea of community, it's that community idea. You know, a lot of schools, they'll have an FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so there you have people that have Christianity and sports in common, and they get together because the nerds aren't invited, I guess. You know, you, you got to be a jock of some sort to be involved in the FCA. But the early church, it said they continually devoted themselves to koinonia, the fellowship of Christians. They left the athletes part off of it. <laughs> Their fellowship was just with each other. So they're united around what? Their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was it. It didn't matter whether you played sports or not. They were a community evolved around that in the apostles' doctrine. And so how did that look? Look, we just looked at verse 42. Look in verses 44 to 46. And it said, all the, the early church, all that believed were together. And now how can you have this without, it's like a new family. What does it say there in verse 44? They had all things in common. I mean, that's what you have when you have a family, isn't it? It's the way it works in our house, sort of. <laughs> Got a lot of things in common. In verse 45, it says they were so much, this was their new family, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. In verse 46, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, this is not the Bible's version of communism or like a hippie commune. That's not what it's talking about there. So what it's saying is that somebody had a need, somebody that had the means to meet that need, which would include selling land, they would do it. And some, they even sold their houses. So look over just a couple chapters over in chapter 4. So we're talking here about the fellowship of the early church, which should carry on over into ours. And in Acts 4.32, it says, And the multitude of them that believed were what? Of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had, it says it again, all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace. And so that's the only way this works. 
That's the only way this koinonia, it's by the Holy Spirit. It's got to be by God's grace. It's not going to be just because, well, we kind of like each other or, you know, it's like a nice social club and I just like the people I'm around. No, it's God's grace that makes it work. And it was upon them all. Verse 34, neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, he had land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, here's the thing. Everybody wasn't out selling their houses because they had church, church in houses. So it wasn't like it was a sin then or it's a sin now that you have your own house and you have to, so you have to sell your house so you can bring your money in and we all just live here. I mean, that's not what the Bible's saying that needs to happen. So it's just some of those wealthier people probably had an extra house or had lands or whatever and they were able to sell them and to help people out that had a need. And they're just willing to give to help people. That's just the attitude they had because they see a brother or sister in need. Well, I got an extra house over here. I got all, I don't need all this land I have. And these people are poor, destitute because listen, back then they had poor people. And if you were a Jew and you gave your life, it's just like it is today. If you're over in those Middle Eastern countries, you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are cut off from your family and you have no means of support. You have nothing. They needed help. And so that's what we're seeing here. The ones that could help them were, and I'll tell you, uh, we just lost one of the more generous saints that I've heard of. <laughs> so Dave Stesh did his giving in the right way. And let me, let me say what I mean by that. So I got an email from John Abild saying he met somebody that knew Dave, that, that he's saying, look, I borrowed money from him and I eventually paid him back. And Dave said, you're one of the few people that have ever paid me back. He was lending money to all kinds of people. And most of them weren't paying him back, but yet he kept lending money. And his wife told me, she said, I just found out that he had a gift card ministry that I didn't know about. So he's not even telling his wife. And that's, isn't that what we, we read in Matthew? You know, you're to give, but you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And I mean, that is a tremendous testimony. And I'll tell you, that's a good sign of a regenerate heart, a person that is willing to give and especially willing to give when people are burning you. You're giving, and they're just taking advantage of you, but yet he's still giving. And that's, that's a true brother, isn't it? And, and that's what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. So for the rest of this, uh, talking about fellowship, if you would turn over to Philippians 2, I want to kind of concentrate on what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So we're talking about one of the pillars is fellowship. So Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, If there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves, and look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And isn't that what we just read was going on in the book of Acts? That's, that's how those people were living. One accord of one mind. They weren't looking on things like, this is just mine, I'm, I'm, but they're saying, no, I'm going to give to anybody that I see have a need. It's my brothers and sisters that they've had, they had a need, and we're going to meet that. So there's got to be unity. That's what we're reading about here. You know, back in 1980, the U.S. hockey team performed what is now known as the Miracle on Ice. And announcer Al Michaels, you know, he shouted out the famous thing, do you believe in miracles? Well, I wouldn't exactly call them winning that gold medal a miracle in a sense, biblical sense, but, I mean, it was pretty astounding. You know, the Soviets had won the gold medal up to that point for 20 years in a row, and they... Right before that whole Olympics happened, they had destroyed an all-star team of Americans that were from the professional hockey league, the National Hockey League. The, the Soviets just destroyed them. 
And this Olympic team was all amateurs, mostly college kids, and they were seated 12th. There's no way they were expected to do well, just a bunch of college amateurs. And so this Herb Brooks was the name of the guy that took over to coach that team. And his job was, and we're talking about unity and fellowship, and his job was he had to unite these guys. So they're all from different backgrounds, different colleges, different parts of the country, and they all came with their own style of play and the, like they, the, the way they like to do things. So unity for this guy, getting this team to be united, was not going to be easy. Just a group of individuals, and none of them, at the point he inherited this team, none of them was on the same page. And so the problem he was facing was everybody identified with their former team their former college, not with the Olympic team. And we got that here. We got Northerners, we got Southerners, we got people from everywhere. You know, and your accent doth betrayeth you. You know, everybody knows where you're from, right? Well, Will Brooks, he's, he's facing this team, and he asked him one time, he says, who do you play for? He's asking these different players, and they would name that whatever college they went to, Stanford, Ohio State, Michigan, you know, Florida, wherever. That was their answer to him. And so during one exhibition game, they're out there playing, and these guys are giving like half-hearted effort because they're not really united playing as a team. They don't have any purpose yet. And he's like, all right, you all are going to skate. You're going to skate till you're wore out. And so the way to make a long story short, finally one of the players says, I play for the United States of America. He got the point, and the rest of them kind of fell in line. That was like a defining moment. And that became the point that united them as a team. I'm saying they had that one purpose, that one goal, that one fellowship. Like with us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ is where it was. And Jesus prayed this in John 17, 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There is no division in the Godhead. There is perfect unity there. And Jesus said he wants that to be that way here. And that's the same thing we just read that Paul says. Now look, this chapter 2, what Paul's talking about here, it actually, what he's saying begins if you go back and look in chapter 1, verse 27. Look what it says. He says, only let your, King James says, conversation be as becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, he says that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, how? In one spirit with one mind striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. Now, here's what's interesting about that. That word conversation, it's going to be different in different translations. But that is where we get our word politics from. Now, you wouldn't make the connection with that just looking at that word. Or at least I wouldn't. But that is what that word means. It literally looks like it's the Greek word. It looks like our word politics. And what conversation means is how you live as a citizen, a citizen of a country. And that's what that word lifestyle conversation means, how you live as a citizen. And the Philippians, they were a Roman colony with all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens. But there are like an outcropping of that. They're not near Rome. They're Philippi. But that is what they, they understood, that type of language. He's saying live as citizens. Citizens of another country, from another colony. And what colony are we all from and we're the Philippians from and we as a church? A heavenly colony, an outpost of heaven. Because look over in chapter 3, verse 20, he uses the same word. So he is saying here in Philippians 3, 24, our conversation is where? Is in heaven. He's saying that's where you live as a citizen. Our citizenship is really in heaven, but yet we're also citizens of America. But really, this church and us in this community, we are like an outpost of heaven here. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. We're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And so we're supposed to represent as a church our king and his kingdom. And so look back and read verse 27, 127 in light of that. He says, let your conversation, your lifestyle as a citizen of heaven, be as becomes the gospel of your king, of Christ. 
that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And so here is how we're to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, even though we're not there. Because this is how heaven will be. People are not going to be fighting up there. They're going to be getting along. There's not going to be different doctrine up there when we get to heaven or when it comes here, heaven on earth. But he says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so that's what Paul's doing here in chapter 2. He's picking back up on that. And he's going to expand and say more of what he's talking about, of what it means to live as a citizen of heaven while you're here on earth. So actually, verses 1 to 4 in chapter 2 in the Greek is just one long sentence. I think there's one period in the, in the King James. But it's an if-then statement. He's saying, if this is true for you, then this is what should happen to you as a Christian. It's an if-then statement. So we have an if of verse 1, and the then part of it is verses 2 through 4. So it's an if statement followed by a command and how to accomplish it. It would be the same as if I said, so if you want to be healthy, then shape up. That's the command. You want to be healthy. If you want to be healthy, shape up. And you do that by dieting, <clears throat> by exercise, by getting enough rest, and by being happy. That's in essence what he is doing here in this Philippians 1 through 4. Paul is saying, if you've experienced these things, verse 1, if you've experienced them things, then be of the same mind. That's his command to all of us here, to the church. Be of the same mind. And he's saying four ways you do that, which is what we're going to look at. You have the same love for one another. You be in full accord. You think of others better than yourself. And you look on the things of others as more important than your own things. That's the four ways you do that, to be of one mind. That's what he's telling. That is his command to us here as a church. So let's begin by looking at this first if statement in verse 1. He says, if therefore there be any consolation in Christ. And that word consolation just means any encouragement. Have you ever experienced the encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ? It's just like we talked about Sunday. Have you ever had him speak to your heart that your sins are forgiven you, encouraged you in that way? Have you ever heard him say, son, be of good cheer, Thy sins are forgiven. How's that going to happen today? Most people aren't going to hear an audible voice of the Lord. He's not going to appear and speak to you. It's how does that happen today? How do you have a knowing that your sins are forgiven like that man would have had when Jesus spoke to him? It's just the inward witness of the Holy Spirit, and you should have that. It shouldn't be something, I'm just not sure. No, we should, we should have heard that voice. And that's what he's talking about here. Or maybe it could be a word of healing. Like he spoke to the woman that had the issue of blood. A word of encouragement. He says, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith had made you whole. You can have that when you're trusting the Lord for healing. The same word. He spoke a word to them. He'll speak a word to you today. You don't have to wonder. I just don't, I'm not sure if this is going to work. I'm trusting the Lord, but I'm, you know, no. You press in, you can get that same word. It'll happen through the Holy Spirit. Or have you ever been in an especially dangerous or unsettling situation and heard the Lord say, be of good cheer? We're talking about a word of comfort. Be of good cheer. It is I. He can say, be not afraid. So has the Lord ever encouraged you, either through the Bible, through an inward word, or from a word from somebody else, that, hey, everything's okay? It's happened all those ways to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you all, too. You know, there was a young boy. His name was Benjamin West. Maybe most of you hadn't heard of him. And he decided to paint a picture of his sister when his mom wasn't home. And so he got all these bottles of ink out, and all this guy did was make a huge mess. And so his mother comes home, and she sees this mess. But instead of scolding him, she picks up the picture, and she says, What a beautiful picture of your sister that you've drawn here, and she kissed him. And he said later in life, with that kiss, I became a painter. And he was a famous painter, whether you heard about him or not. So let me ask you, how many messes have we made? Plenty of them, right? And God picks us up, and instead of scolding us a lot of times, what does he tell us? Be of good cheer, right? Because I already quoted it, those guys in the boat, they weren't exercising faith. They were screaming in terror. And he doesn't get on him. He looks at him. 
He, he realizes, man, they're in a dangerous situation. And what does God do? He doesn't get on them about that. He says, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And that's what we experience a lot of time. God will encourage us when we fall, won't he? He does. Because it says in Proverbs that a righteous man will fall seven times. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't stay down because it goes on to say a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. And why does he rise again? Because God encourages us and he lifts us up. And so that's what we have there. If there be any consolation in Christ is the first thing he says. Have you ever experienced that? And he goes on to say, is there any comfort of love? Have you ever experienced the consolation of God's love? Well, I'd say if you're a born-again person, you've experienced that. It says this in 1 John 4, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And herein is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't decide one day we're going to love him and we look at the cross and, oh, look at that. How did I not see that before? I'm going to exercise. No, that's not what happened, is it? He had to open our eyes to see that. And he loved us first so that we could love him. And so we've experienced his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought there's an ought to that if we've experienced that. We're talking about our fellowship here. He says, then we ought to love one another. Or there's other ways we experience God loves. I've just seen people over this past week lost a loved one. And if anyone in here has lost a loved one, whether it's a child, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, or a friend, how many people could testify of experiencing the comforting love of God? Man, I have. Lost, lost the baby, a stillborn. Couldn't have been worse. And yet, I've supernaturally experienced the love of God, and I'm sure a lot of people can give testimonies of that. And that's what he's talking about here. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians. I love this verse. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so, listen, true comfort Whenever you are grieving about a situation, you've lost a loved one, you, you're in a really hard time, maybe you're having mental problems, emotional problems, I don't know. But there is only one source of comfort. There is really only one true source. It's not the heart of men. It isn't. It only comes from God. Now, he may put it in the heart of men, and it may be shown to us through another man, but we need to remember that even when some person comforts us, the source of that comfort always is God Almighty. Especially if we're Christians and get it from another Christian. It's God Almighty. Because Paul went on to write, he comforts us in all our tribulation. And why? Why does that happen? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And so sometimes God lets us go through very severe things, and we experience loss. And why does that happen? That's so that we can, in turn, give that same comfort to somebody else. And he can use us to minister his grace and life and comfort to other people. That's the way God works. He gives us comfort so that we can pass it on and console others. So listen, I want us to turn to Philemon. It's in between Titus and Hebrews. And we've got to turn there because we never turn there. And we got a reason to turn there tonight. Otherwise, you'd never read Philemon. Philemon. There's only one chapter, and we're going to look at verse 7. In between Titus and Hebrews, right before Hebrews. Because that one could slip by if you don't wet your finger real good. Philemon 1.7, it says this. Just looking at one verse here, Paul writes to him, he says, For we have had great joy... And we're talking about consolation and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by the brother. And so he's saying, hey, I've seen the sacrificial love and consolation that you've given other. And he says, that brings me joy and comfort. So sometimes when we see what other people are willing to do and, and the way they're going out of their way to help comfort us and the sacrificial love that they will show us, have you ever had that happen where someone shows you a kindness and you're thinking, 
I'm just not used to that happening. But the person's a Christian, and they show you that kindness, and it's just like, man, you're just like overwhelmed. And it's a comfort and an encouragement to you. That's what Paul's talking about here. You know, there was this ship, the USS Pueblo, captured by the North Koreans back in that war. 82 survivors, and they took 13 men and made them sit in this table rigidly for hours on end. And as these guys are sitting there, if they moved, they'd get beat or hit. But after hours, the doors would fly open, his Korean guard would come in, and he would brutally beat whoever was sitting in chair one. And it was the same guy time after time. He did it to him on the second day and on the third day. And these guys that are all there with him, they're realizing, man, this guy can't take much more of this. This happens again, and he's going to die. So guess what happened? A young, play, a young sailor took his seat in seat one, knowing what was coming. And each day, a different person would sit in seat one, knowing what was coming. Sacrificial love is what we're talking about. And finally, those North Korean guards, they just gave up. Because in the face of sacrificial love, you can't beat that out of these guys. They were just going to keep that up as long as they needed to. But that gives you encouragement, doesn't it? When you see that kind of love that other people are willing to do on your behalf. And that's what we need to be exhibiting here in our fellowship at Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And so that's what Paul's asking here. You go back to Philippians 1. He's saying, hey, brethren, if there's any consolation in Christ, if you've experienced any comfort of love, and he goes on to talk about fellowship of the Spirit. Have you ever experienced that? The fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit? You know, Paul in his benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, he says, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and he ends it by saying, the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That was his prayer, not just for certain ones, not just for the leadership, but Paul says, I want the entire church here to experience the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is very easy to read over. If you're reading your Bible, it's just like, ah, it's just what everybody says at the end of their prayer. Oh, no. He meant that. And that is a tremendous promise that you can latch on to there. Because we have a tremendous need for fellowship, and especially fellowship with God to know that he is with us. You know, they used to talk about the mountain men, and they're like, you know, we're going to go up in the mountains. We don't, we don't want society people or a bother and all that. But, you know, those guys would always come back down. Because we're not made to not fellowship. You know, they found the, the best way to break a prisoner is to put them in solitary confinement. That's what they found over time. I don't know how that compares to that waterboarding. But we can know real fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Through the Holy Spirit. And let me ask you, do you really believe that? That you can know the Lord Jesus Christ today through the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? that? That's God's means. It's not just for those people that live back there that you read in the Bible that they can hear his voice. We can hear his voice through the Holy Spirit. That's one of the benefits of having the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God living inside of us, if we believe that. So when Jesus was telling his disciples, to show you what I'm talking about, and he's telling them I'm going to leave, he told them he was going to leave them. You know what he told them? He said, I'm not going to leave you guys as orphans. Actually, what he said in the King James is, I won't leave you comfortless. And the word comfortless is the word for orphan or desolate. Because listen, an orphan, a lot of times you watch, see those movies, I mean, they are lonely people in a lot of ways, right? Feel abandoned by their parents. And he says, I'm not going to leave you all that way. I've been with you here. You're used to being with me. It's going to disturb you that I'm gone. He says, but I'm not going to leave you that way. I'm not going to leave you desolate or orphans. Because he said this to him, he says, I will not leave you comfortless or orphans. He says, I will come to you, John 14, 18. And so what's he talking about there comes in what way? He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit where he'll come and live with us forever. And that is how we'll experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in private, it should happen here when we worship and I've experienced that, what I sense an anointing, not all the time, it should happen more often, but a lot of times when we're all done and the meeting's done, we said our prayer, but we're still here fellowshipping with each other, a lot of times I've sensed the Lord's hand's still here. I've been in meetings that have been that way, and a fellowship just doesn't start when the singings or the preacher says his last prayer. 
It's a koinonia, that great grace that is upon us all. And that's what we can experience. Many times we should. And he goes on to end it with any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bows and mercy. And that word for bows, it's talking about this inward affection. Do you know God has an inward affection for you if you're his child? He really cares about you. And look over in Philippians 1.8. Paul talks about that. He says, for God is my record. Paul says, how greatly I long after you all. And how does he do it? In the bowels of Jesus Christ. So he's saying he's experiencing this compassion from his bowels. And it comes from whom? He's experiencing that because that's the way the Lord feels about us. The bowels of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should, if we've experienced that, be willing to share it to others. So in verse 1 here, to summarize, he's telling the Philippians and us, he's saying, if you've experienced these different things I've talked about here, and all true Christians, I would say, have experienced this to one degree or another, it should happen. Encouragement from Christ, the comfort, the love of God, the tender communion of the Holy Spirit, and the compassion of mercy of the Lord, he's saying then. Oh, he, he's not asking if, like, has it happened? Like, maybe it didn't. No, he's saying if you have, which you should have, he's saying, because you're Christians, all Christians experience this, is what Paul's saying. saying basically, it, you could really say since you've experienced this. Then something should happen, and that's when it happens in verse 2. He gives a command. Then he says, fulfill ye my joy. Now, that is not an option. That's not an option he's given the Philippians or us. And Paul was a very joyful person. He didn't need to have joy given to him, but he's saying he wants it to be fulfilled or completed. He wants that to happen. And they do that by how? What's the first thing he says? That they be like-minded. And that is where we get our word harmonious, being of the same opinion. So what does that mean? like-minded and harmonious, that everybody in here likes Cheerios. I mean, a lot of people won't touch Cheerios. <laughs> or blue trucks or red hair. That's not, we all know, that's not what he's talking about when he says be of one mind, but they're united around what? The apostles' doctrine. So we just saw that, didn't we, in Acts 2.42? The apostles' doctrine and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, when you say the apostles' doctrine, that's more than just saying, well, we have Jesus in common. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot of Jesuses out here. So just to say, well, we got Jesus in common, that's all that matters. Well, no, we saw that they continued in fellowship, and the first thing that was there in Acts 2.42 is the apostles' doctrine. And that would include what? Oh, that would include the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity, his virgin birth. The fact he lived the sin of life, it would include all that. That is crucial. You've got to have agreement on that. But it would also include what when we're talking about the apostles' doctrine? How about Paul's teaching on the head covering? What about qualifications for ministers? What about what repentance is? What about the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? I think you need to be, we all should be in one mind. He's including all of that in there. I think all of that. And on and on we could name other things. And he goes on to say that you be like-minded, having the same love. And he's talking about for God and each other. He means there's no favorites. There shouldn't be any favorites here in the body of Christ. And that is true fellowship. So we know that, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. What does he say there? He says, well, whether one member, doesn't matter who it is, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it or him or her, or whether one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And that is one way that you can tell whether you have the same love one for another. So here's this brother, gets blessed with a nice house, and the guy's only been looking for a week. And here you are, you're still living with mom and dad or wherever it is, and you've been looking for months. And how can you really rejoice with them? Or here's this sister giving a testimony. God's healed me. It was some serious thing, and everybody's breaking out in applause. And you're sitting there thinking, man, I've been suffering through this trial for five years, and God hasn't done that for me. And that's where that love can be tested, can't it? 
having this being like-minded what does it say there in verse 2 having the same love and then he goes on to say being of one accord and he's not talking about those old Honda jokes being of one accord <laughs> being in one accord but he's talking about being united in spirit and that's where we get our word unanimous fellow sold yeah, you hear that expression, that Anna Green Gables movie that kids used to watch back later, kindred spirits. Well, that's what it's talking about, you know? You've got the same outlook on life. And he's saying that's the way it should be in church. We've got the same outlook on life according to the Bible. And he goes on to say, of one mind at the end of verse 2, being of one accord and of one mind, the same intent or purpose. Now, I would say I think our church used to be more in line with that. We had the same intent and purpose, and we had more of a unity and intention on living holy lives separate from the world and trusting God for everything. Pretty much everybody was on the same page about what that meant, right? And hopefully I think we're coming back to that, what that means. I really do think that. So we're all on different levels. I understand that, and some have been around longer than others, so it's not going to always look identical with everybody. But I would say this, we all whether you've been in here for just a little bit or you've been here for 40 years, we all should have the same desire and intent to trust God wholly to fulfill his promises the way he says he does them through his word. Amen? And I think we also should have the same intention to live lives that are separate from the world. Not imitating the world in their dress, their lust, their entertainment, their obsession with social media. That's just becoming a plague. Because here's the thing. We all, don't we all want God to move? I mean, we really do. And <laughs> I just, the problem is, I think, our wells are stopped up. And you go back and you read Genesis 27, and it says that when Isaac came back, and he's wanting water for his animals and his livestock, you know what it said? The wells were stopped up. The Philistines had filled them dirt and I think that's what's happened and he had to unstop the wells because it talks about the water in those wells was no ordinary water in the Hebrew it says it was living water and when he began to unstop those wells he had opposition Philistines weren't going to say oh yeah no problem uh uh he named two of them he's having opposition when he's having that happen it took the third time around to unstopping the well to where finally God says there you go Took a little persistence. I was going to test you to see how serious you were about that. Getting rid of that dirt that the Philistines had put in there. And then you read, God made a wide path for him and blessed him. And that represents the power of the Holy Spirit came in there. That's revival. And that's what we need to have. We all need to look and see in our lives. What is it that's got this well? We're supposed to have a well of living water coming out of us, flowing. And somehow it's stopped up. We need to honestly, each of us, just look and see, how is that happening? Why am I not experiencing what's being promised me in the New Testament, in us as a church? Something to think about. Genesis 27, if you want to read it. But he goes on to say here, in verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And that's the same word, that strife, is the same word that's used over in chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul says that some would preach Christ of contention not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds so that word strife there nothing should be done through strife it's talking about selfish ambition people that do ministry because they want to further their goals so they want opportunities to minister and they'll cut off cut off others to get those opportunities or they won't because they got selfish ambition, they want to be noticed. They're not going to minister in places where there's really no glory given for what they're doing. And yet, that's a lot of times what God wants us to do. You know, it's amazing to me that they have people that are signed up to come into prison to minister to these prisoners. But the fact that they're not being paid and there's no glory in it, time after time, the prisoners are gathered there to have a meeting. They want to hear from the Lord. And these ministries don't show up. But I guarantee you, if there was going to be a crowd there of any size and they were going to get paid or something people were going to know about it, they'd be there. 
Or who wants to go in that segregation area we go in? There's nobody knows who you're in there. There's no glory in that. But those guys need ministry. And that's what he's talking about here. You know, I had an Assemblies of God minister. This was years ago. And he took me into his church, and he said he was going to show me the ropes one night. And there's all these people around here, and he said, look, here's what he's kind of pulling me aside. He's like, what you need to do is you've got to get connections if you want to get a good church. And he's saying, now watch this. And he's introducing me to these different people, and I'm thinking, I want away from, I just want out of this. I'm not interested in any of this. I couldn't get away from that. It's just making me kind of sick to my stomach, actually. But that's the way a lot of people... Charismatics are just people, whatever, ministries in general, they want connections, they want a bigger church, they have this selfish ambition. And we can be that way in a lot of ways. And Paul is saying there in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That vainglory means you just think you're a little greater than what you are. Like, you know, that this church, if I wasn't here, just couldn't properly function without me. That's what it's talking about there, that vainglory. You know, LeBron James, he was dubbed at one time as the chosen one. <laughs> if I'm not on this team, it's just not going to go anywhere without me. I'm saying, you know, that's, that's the kind of attitude it's talking about here. So some people, and this has just been the way down through church history, they just have to have center stage. You know, back in the day when they had those big tent revivals, A.A. A. Allen just had to have the biggest tent that he could say that. And he got a tent, it's just one foot bigger than the other guy. He had to have that. And I'm saying that's what he's talking about here. But he says, what? We shouldn't be like that. He says, but let nothing, he says, be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. And I like the way this one translation said it. It says, do nothing motivated by getting one up over others or by grandstanding, but with an attitude of humility, consider one another more advanced than yourselves. You got to look at every single person in this church is that they matter. And there's a man here. He was back in the Salvation Army days, and I got a few of his books, and I'll tell you, I might not totally agree with this guy on all this theology, but I'll tell you one thing. This man had a heart for God and was sold out to God, and he has a lot of things I've read about him that I've been able to learn a lot from. And one thing he said was this. He said, every person is a soul, no matter how unimportant they seem to you. And he said, every person you talk to is some mother's son or daughter. And I'll tell you, back when I was going into prison, that really helped me out. Because sometimes you just can get irritated, and I think, wait a minute. This guy I'm talking to here, he is somebody's son. And I'm thinking, what if that was my son in there? How would I want a person that's coming in and sharing the gospel? If Thomas went astray, and he's there in KSR, I'm thinking, how would I want somebody talking to him? I think I'd want him talking to him nice so that he could get his life right. Don't end up here, Thomas. You'd be in big trouble. Lose your basement spot. But isn't that the way it should be? No matter who we see, it doesn't matter whether they're black or Mexican or Middle Eastern or Chinese, whoever. They are a soul made in the image of God, right? We can't have an attitude towards them that, hey, you know, I don't like this guy. I don't like the looks of him. He makes me nervous. And he might make you nervous. But that shouldn't be our attitude towards him. He goes on in verse 4, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man should do what? Also on the thing of things of others. And that look not every man on his own things, that means when you look out for your own things, you're paying real careful attention to how everything's affecting you and that it's going to work out for your benefit. And he's saying we're not to, to look at things that way. We're not to just look out for our own interest. Don't just look out for your own interest, Paul is saying. So you got to say, you know, you look at somebody that they're, nobody wants to talk to them. They got the kind of personality that they're not really cool and nobody really pays much attention. And, you know, people just, you know, isn't there pecking orders everywhere you go? That's the way it was for me in school. And me personally, when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't talk to kids that I wasn't going to gain any advantage from or I didn't think they were cool. I just, I just basically ignored them. I was nasty. All right, I needed to be saved. But Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't have that kind of attitude. You know, in this old movie, there was this boy, he comes for dinner to this middle-class family, and he was a poor, dirt kid. He didn't know anything. And he asked, they're having roasted potatoes, a nice meal, nice middle-class family. 
And he asked the maid, he said, hey, do you have any molasses here? And she's like, sure, get the boy molasses. So she brings in molasses, and the kids are watching. There's two kids, and he pours that molasses all over the roast, as thick as can be. And the girl is like, you are ruining your dinner. What are you doing? You don't put that on roast. And they shush her out, and they get her out of the room. You, can't, you don't talk to your guests like that, the maid tells her. And so the dad's talking to her later. She's all upset. And I think this is a good thing there. He says, here's what you have to do. And this is what we need to do with each other. He says, you got, you got to learn to see things from another person's perspective to understand them. And he said this, and I've never forgot. And it's what Paul's saying here. He says, sometimes you've got to get in another person's shoes and just walk around like you're them to know how to relate to them, right? That's what he's saying here. So we aren't supposed to just look at people and see how they can meet our interests or needs, but we need to look at them and see what do they need? How can I serve them? Amen? And sometimes you think, man, this dude just acts kind of strange. Well, you know, you don't know their background. You know, I mean, I've talked to guys in prison, and sometimes they are very hard to talk to, and then you start asking them some questions, and you realize, well, no wonder. Put yourself in their shoes. I mean, you, I've been through what this guy had been through, and sometimes I'll hear stories. It'll make me want to cry. And it kind of starts giving you a little different perspective. And it's that way even with here in church. You know, we got some of us act strange. But you think, oh, there's probably a reason for that. And you talk to them long enough, you get yourself in their shoes. It'll help us minister to one another. Amen? We've got to look out how we can serve other people. There was a man years back, not that far back, but his name was Sam Rayburn. He was Speaker of the House. Of the United States, Congress, very important person, very powerful person. But there was this reporter, and most of those politicians don't really like reporters very well, but his teenage daughter just died suddenly. This reporter's daughter died suddenly. And the next morning, there's a knock at this reporter's door. The guy opens the door, and there's Sam Rayburn standing there. He said, I just came by to see what I could do to help. That's what he tells that reporter. And that guy started, and he goes, well... Well, there's nothing you can do. You know, we've made all the arrangements. And Sam Rayburn, he says, well, have you guys had coffee this morning? The guy's like, well, no, we haven't had time to, to make coffee. He goes, well, I can at least do that. And he walks in. He says, I can make you guys coffee, your husband and your wife. And while he went to make that coffee, that reporter remembered something. He said, man, on this day, every week he has an appointment that he keeps. And he said to him, he said, Mr. Speaker, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. And Sam Rayburn says to him, he goes, well, I was. But I called the president, and I told him that I had a friend who was in trouble and couldn't come. And that's the way we should be looking for each other. We should be helping the least person in here, shouldn't we? That's just a good story to illustrate. That should be our attitude towards one another, the least person. They need my help. They're in trouble, and I'm willing to do that. So there's only one thing that Paul says. There's only one thing that could make his joy complete, and that's what he says, and that is that the church he served, the churches he served, would be of one mind and of one accord. No favorites in the church, no ambition taking place, nobody trying to outdo the other person. That, that wasn't what was going to make Paul's joy complete. The only thing they were going to outdo each other was to see who could love somebody more than the other person, right? That's what, that'd be a good thing to have happen, wouldn't it? No problem there. And so he's saying, hey, what I want you all to do is be looking out for each other's interests. Put those ahead of your own interest. And there's times we have to do that to really show love to people, don't we? And that's what Paul's saying to ha has to happen. So, you know, you got Brother Cassius over here back in the day, and he has a mule for sale, and he needs the money, somebody that's a member of the church. But there's this other mule trader over here. He doesn't go to church. Uh, he's got a better donkey, cheaper. And he's saying, you can't always look out for your own interests. He says, so maybe that Christian needs to buy Brother Cash's mule that's overpriced. He didn't mean to do it, but he just really needs the money. And not worry about your own interest to get in that better deal. You know, sometimes you got to do that. Help somebody out in that way. So we need to be aware. We're talking about the fellowship, that pillar of fellowship how the decisions we make will affect other people in the church and be aware of how what we say is going to affect them as best we can. A lot of times we offend each other we don't mean to or, you know, you're having a conversation and somebody's saying something that's important to them and you get sidetracked or you're 
you're off looking away. You're not looking at them. You're not paying attention to them. We've got to think how that's affecting our brothers and sisters. If you're talking with them, look them in the eye and have their attention. And if something comes up, let them know, hey, I'm sorry. I really want to hear the rest of what you had to say. We've we got to be thinking about that kind of stuff and not make somebody feel unimportant that they're talking to you. It's something important to them, but you're just off looking to see who else you are. Oh, wait, now, you know, we've got to care about each other a little more than that, don't we? Amen. And people are good about that here. But that's the mind of Christ because he goes on there. We're not going to look at verse 5, but he says, let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of mind because that's what he did. You talk about not looking out for his best interest. His best interest was right up there with the Father. And he laid that all aside to come down here and to live with us and to be treated like dirt and to hang on that cross. And so he's saying, have that mind be in you. That's all of what he was just saying there in verses 1 through 4. So we should never let our pride make ourselves feel superior to anybody in this church. We should always esteem, he's saying, others better than ourselves. And that's easy to say, standing here, me saying that. And it's a lot harder to work that out on a day-to-day -day basis. But listen, when our church is like that, and that is the way our thinking is, that pillar, when it's standing strong like that, that is a church that God will bless. And I'm saying our church is like that in so many ways. It really is. I, this is not, I'm not up here getting on our church's case because I've experienced it, and a lot of people in here have experienced it, that when people get in a hard way, I, I mean, I've never seen a group of people that will rally around to help financially, prayer-wise, or any other way. So I'm saying we, we've got a lot of good fruit here in that church, and, it, and it's really a result of our former pastor. That's the way Brother Hamilton was, very generous person. And, and so we show the fruit of that. But this is still part of the teaching. It's still part of Pillar 6. And we could all use improvement. Amen? All of us could use improvement. So that's what we're talking about. So we want to just pray and continue to pray that our church here will be united, which is what we read about today in Philippians and back in Acts chapter 2, that we'll be united with the humility of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us once again tonight, and I just ask, Father, for all of us here that you'll just work that mind of Christ, that it'll be in us, and we'll be just be conscious of one another and how we can edify and build up this church through our fellowship with each other, and that we'll look out for each other's interest in ways we can encourage one another and be willing to sacrifice our time, energy, money, our prayer time, whatever it is, Lord, to help our brothers and sisters out. And as a result of that, Lord, we can look up and we can expect that this church will be blessed with great grace, that the power of your Holy Spirit will be here manifested as we minister to each other and that we will see and experience your presence in our midst. And I just ask that you'll do that, Lord, that you'll make us all of one mind, of one accord, and with the same intent and purpose, that you'll do whatever work has to happen, Lord, that that can happen here. And we just thank you that you'll do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.